0: The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct.
1: All right, we are back. Welcome into Season 2, Episode 14 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Appreciate your patience for our week off while I was over at PASIC. Uh, We'll get more into my my PASIC recap. A little bit of a travel disaster, but the show was amazing. But before we get into that, let's uh, call out our our intro beat was submitted by Roger Lewis. Roger says he's using Reaper for his DAW. Using captain plugins to create chords and a bass line to have loops for practicing. He is an immediate artist. He's playing a 22 inch vintage jazz ride, 21 inch dervish jazz ride, 14 inch coma hi hats. The drums are Bronwyn Drums, which is a custom company that makes drums using six ply Keller maple shells. He has an 8 by 10, 14 by 14, 16 by 20, and a 4 and 3 quarter inch by 14 snare. Drum heads are Evans calf tones on the snare and toms, and a coated EMAD on the kick. Microphone setup is pretty simple SM57 on the snare, a Sennheiser E614 overhead, and an EVPL33 on the bass drum. He says he EQ'd it to have a lo fi hip hop sound, and he's using some slate plugins. That was super cool. We will drop in the video at the end of the episode. Um, you gotta see Roger's hands super, super smooth. Great touch. It's kind of jealous. You make it look easy where i feel like i'm struggling all the time but anyway thanks thanks for submitting roger um if any of you would like to submit your beat i have maybe two or three more so if you've already submitted one be patient we'll get you in the show here shortly but if you want to send something shoot it over to DrumCandyPodcast at gmail.com you can include a video or just audio and also um, i would love to see and hear you so if you can do like a talking head explaining what's happening that way i don't have to read it It'd be cool to have your voice in the show as well. If not, just audio or video is super cool. Send it over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Okay, a few housekeeping things here. Uh, We've got a lot going on here at Drum Factory Direct, including we are putting together some gift packs. These will be actually for sale exclusively on stickshed.com. Again, that's a website that we developed for you to buy drumsticks, amounts, and accessories. Um, on our new platform, we're testing this new platform. It's fully responsive, mobile-ready. Um, so head over to stickshed.com, shop around. We have some prepacks we're putting together where it'll be like a, a Promark stick bag with a few different pairs of different types of 5As. We're going to throw in a free pair of our house brand 5As, some moon gel, drum key, all that kind of stuff. So they're great kind of, we have a Promark one, we have a Zildjian one, we have a Vic Firth one currently, and some other stuff in the works as well. Uh, the Vic Firth, we have a, a marching version too, so you can get some hardimans um, and some practice tips and that kind of stuff. So um, be on the lookout. Hopefully they'll be on sale by Black Friday. That's our goal. Over on StickShed.com. These are great gift ideas for a drummer in your life. Or if you need if someone in your life is asking you what would be a great gift for you, um, I would highly recommend it. There's average of, you know, $25 savings or something like that per pack. So that's over at StickShed.com. We'll be promoting the heck out of it on the dfd socials and all that so be on the lookout also all the snare drums that we've been featuring over the past few episodes i'm going to wrap it up this week the bucks county prime series snares that we've been demoing and examining they're all for sale um we're going to again try to have those listed on drum in time for the black friday rush um, these are all i believe they're all selling for 5.99 which is an amazing deal for a handmade custom drum um and each one of these, I mean, we're, we'll talk more about them in a bit here, but I think you could just pick any one of them and be happy. But we're going to try to fine-tune maybe your selection here in the, in the next segment. But we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. But if any of those drums so far have really caught your ear and you just, you just want to get it, um, let us know. We can, we can hold it for you before they go on sale on the site. So just shoot me a DM over on the Drum Factory Direct page or my personal page or email drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Um, Yeah, they'll all be open to the public for sale here in a week or so. So if you want one, snag it now. I believe it was in the last episode that I made a call out for anyone who would like to become a music journalist to send me some submissions for, um, you know, because we're rebuilding the Drum Factor Direct website. We've got stickshed.com that's already up with a bunch of stuff that I wrote. Um, I want to turn this into a platform for all the educators and drummers out there to share their ideas. Um, Just to clarify a bit. What I would like from you at this point would be to send me ideas, which could be a title or an abstract or an outline, or if you have something drafted up, that's great. I don't need to see full drafts at the moment. It's more just the general ideas. Pitch me some ideas, um, and then we can take it from there. As an editor, I'm I'm used to to kind of crafting articles out of just basic ideas. I can I can help you with that part of it. So what I need now is just the cool, good ideas. So if you want to become a contributor to our sites, Just email me, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right, so let's talk about PASIC. Goodness gracious. I believe this, I've been going to PASIC since 1994. Um, Obviously, those early ones when I was a teenager was just overwhelmingly mind-blowing, and it's kind of hard for me to have perspective of exactly what went down back in those early days. But I will say this year's show, as far as recent, and I'm going back maybe the past 10 years, it might have been the best, the best one that I've been to. Um, an amazing lineup. Uh, so it starts. If you haven't been to PASIC, it's a. I mean, it's, it's a. Thir- it's a Wednesday evening, Thursday, Friday, Saturday long conference. All the percussion companies and drum companies around the world are invited to come and attend and exhibit. There's clinicians and all different styles of of drums and percussion, not just drum sets. You have drum set. You have world percussion. You have classical percussion. You have ensembles, lots of marching, um, panel discussions. I mean, it's just a a nonstop overload of drums and percussion. So if you've never been, you might want to go. I think next year is going to be even better. I am on the drum set committee, so I'm kind of involved in a little bit of who gets to be there for the drum set department. But um, I have so little to do with the actual show. So huge, huge props to Joshua. The executive director and Mark Powers, who runs the drum set committee, all the logistics team, everyone that's involved in PS. I mean, it's a monumental task to bring all this stuff together, and all of our, the industry partners who are flying in their artists and putting them up. I um, mean, it's it's a it's a heck of a job, and they they just absolutely knocked it out of the park. So here's a little bit of a rundown of what I saw at PASIC. I had to live in the two drum set rooms just because there's so much going on and that's the that's the world that we exist in as a drum set world so i had to focus mostly on drum set stuff but you know at any time when there was a drum set clank there was something equally cool in symphonic percussion or marching or world or technology um, but the first thing that i saw on thursday morning 11 a.m keith carlock i still i mean top five drum soloists, i think of all time just mesmerizing. He played, God, he probably played a 15 minute opening solo, if not more. And just riveting. The guy's just fantastic. Um, and he's he, I'm gonna say this probably often. He's someone that if you haven't seen in the room in the flesh, not being filtered through, you know, microphones and production and a big stage or YouTube or whatever. Just to hear him hit the drums I mean, his touch, it can go from overwhelmingly bombastic to just feather feather light, and delicate. Um, he's just an absolute master. And the whole time I was side stage, so I wasn't hearing the microphones coming through the PA so much. So I was hearing just what he was playing off the kit, and fantastic. I've seen him so many times at this point, and every time it's just pure inspiration. So Keith Carlock, an amazing drum set clinic to kick it off. And that was followed by a friend of the show and longtime friend of mine, Dylan Whissing who then went deep dive onto what does it mean to be a session drummer, a remote session drummer in today's situation, the way the industry is now. He played some tracks that he had, he had done with you know, Eminem and all these big artists and then just kind of went down the, the, the world that he exists in, which is recreating break beats and you know, how do you do business remotely in this kind of industry. Very informative, great clinic. His Ludwig drum sounded amazing too. And then right after Dilling was jason McGurr. again one of my favorite drummers in the world he played just some death cab tracks taught a great lesson on how he develops independence and coordination by like stacking rhythms and stuff it's a really really cool concept i believe there's a book in the works that that he was pulling these ideas from so fantastic clinician amazing player super inspiring very original with his ideas his song construction I mean, just super humble, man. What a what a great, great hang that was. Great to catch up with Jason, too. And then back in the drum set room, Omar Hakim. Again, just a living legend. He was the first clinician I saw at PASIC in 1994. And then to see him again here in 2022, still just doing the thing. Super groovy, super musical. His whole kind of slant was, you know, just play for the moment and don't think too much. Don't let... You know, don't let self criticism get in the way. Just express yourself and share ideas with an audience. Um, and he just always sounds so so good. What a living legend! Great to see Omar. And after Omar was another friend of the show, Nashville drummer Kevin Murphy. He was in the the smaller room where Dylan and Pedrito were, um, but just absolutely crushed. I was there for sound check, and he was playing this, some some pretty hard hitting tracks. And just to hear again the sound of what he produces coming off the instrument. Just so powerful, but just sounded big and full. The superphonic was smashing. Ludwig kit sounded great, um, so it was really cool to see Kevin in that environment. Um, he was supposed to be there last year, I believe, but had to had to cancel for some reason, maybe COVID or something. Uh, but it was great to see Kevin. And then the cap off Thursday was the legendary Dave Weckl. What more can you say? What a way to finish off a jam packed day with no breaks from literally starting at 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. with Dave Weckle just doing what he does, inspiring and influencing people. I mean, 30 years now, 40 years now, unbelievable. And he still sounds amazing. And then on Friday, we had Jim Toscano. If you know Jim, he kind of found a little niche during, during the pandemic where he was helping drummers set up their remote studios and teaching studios to do Zoom lessons and all that. So he really kind of like took over that that space, so it was cool to see him at PASIC. Followed him with um, Allison Miller, might have been my personal favorite performance of the whole show. Um, she came out and I want to say played a half hour, nearly a half hour solo, uh, based on was it Sunny Moon for Two? It was just it was a classic jazz standard where she would keep coming back and referencing the melody and exploring and different, you know, putting that that phrase into different environments, different feels. Different. I mean, it was. Absolutely tremendous and she's just such a cool positive spirit. Um, So that was a great great clinic I've got to get her on the show. So we'll make that happen soon Um, That was followed with Mike Miley of Rival Sons just smashing big powerful rock drummer Um, Again another just great positive energy and then Tony Coleman legendary blues drummer from uh, BB King's band for many many years He came out and just crushed did the thing Donald Barrett, who I was not familiar with, he's been working with Lady Gaga. Um, that was the most kind of spirited, energetic, like fun clinic of the weekend. Uh, he just kind of came out and set the mood right away. Just played beautiful, really positive vibes, great energy. Um, Andy Norell, the legendary steel drummer, he had a performance after that. And then Friday ended with Robert Sput Seawright and Nate Worth of Ghost Note. Doing their thing. They had people going crazy in that room. Then on the final day, Saturday, another friend of the show, Damon Grant, gave a, a clinic on hand percussion, world percussion, fantastic presenter. Um, we're going to be working with him a bit here. He's probably going to be doing some writing for us, so stay tuned for that. Um, Henry Cole, another one of my favorite contemporary drummers. If you're not hip to Henry Cole, check him out. Um, and Just amazing flow, amazing touch um again another very positive spirit just seemed to be like the the year of just good energy good positive vibes um so henry i'm probably going to get him on the show soon as well um or my old buddy mike johnston man two o'clock he was it 10 years ago he was at PASIC, and that was right before or right after i had booked him on the cover of modern drummer um, so 10 years later he's back in the main ballroom and just doing what he does sounded beautiful had a really beautiful Gretsch, um, was it a broadcaster, maybe? Um, blue sparkle kit with his blue sparkle, um, uh, uh, what do they call it? Brooklyn Standard Snare Limited run of those. I think there's like 50 of them available. But, you know, Mike's Mike's probably the best clinician out there. A great player. He's really good at delivering information, inspiring. Before his clinic, he had all the logistics people come out and play his kit. And that's just, that's Mike's vibe. Um, so that was amazing to see him. Jonathan Barber followed up with another fantastic performance. Another friend of the show. Wow, most of these artists have been on the show, so I've got to book the ones who haven't. I guess that's the uh, the next call to action here. Jonathan's great. Got to see him a little bit in the exhibit hall to catch up. Man, what a, what an amazing player. And then the the drum set side of PACE concluded with Benny Greb. Unfortunately, I had to miss it because I was in travel nightmare trying to rebook a flight that got canceled, but uh, enough about that from all reports, Benny just sounded as great as he always does. Um, he's a handful of commissions I've seen over the years. Uh, when I saw him at PASIC 2008 or something like that. one of the I didn't know much about him and one of the few times where I've just had to give someone a stand innovation because it was just so, so incredible. And from all reports, he just keeps leveling up, leveling up. So that was the end of the drum set side of PASIC. And then the last concert was Ghost Note with Sput. Um, just just doing their thing. Just putting a a proper cap on the show. It's kind of hard to describe it just by giving a quick rundown of all the different things that happened because there's also the random interactions. Uh, Gunnar Olsen, I saw him in the hallway before Mike Johnson's clinic and that's the first time he and I have actually met in person. He's been on the show and we've been, you know, in touch constantly on social media. But that was the first time we actually got to hang out for a few minutes. So, just randomly, he was walking down the hall and I was talking to someone and, hey, there's Gunner. So, that's kind of basic, too, you know, and catching up with folks in the exhibit hall with, you know, uh, Paul Francis has his new cymbal company, Symbol Craftsman, to see and, and hear some of his work. And Matt Nolan was there from the UK. Um, our friends from Dream Symbols. I mean, it was just cool to, you know, and uh, the Bald Man Percussion guys. So just it's just amazing to catch up to all the random interactions. So anyway, if you've never been to PASIC, um, I would highly recommend you put it on your to do list. They do have group rates. If you want to get a whole bunch of people together, you get discounted of rates. Um, so, yeah, it's always a fun time. So that was PASIC 2022. Okay, let's wrap up this discussion about wood shell snare drums um we're gonna i was gonna do a blindfold test with these these six different drums and i realized well, what's the point in that i think we're still trying to educate i'm still trying to educate myself and hopefully some of you are learning something from this about what do the different species actually do where do they really want to be you know where do they sound best um, is there a best is there a huge difference between them so hopefully over the past three episodes you've you train your ears a little bit to maybe which type of drum might kind of be most appropriate to you and then what I want to do here this week is just wrap it up and just focus on what I thought were my favorite tunings for these drums and just kind of put them all back to back so you can have a final comparison you know which one of these might be the best you know option for you whether you want to buy one of these drums like I said they're all for sale Five ninety nine is the price. Or if you want to get one built, you can always contact Bucks County or if you have another brand that you you prefer that maybe offers some of these options. But um, yeah, so let's just run them down. Um, And again, my preferred tuning was based on how the drum was reacting in my studio on that day with the kit that I had set up and just the vibe that I was feeling that day. Um, And I focused mostly in the medium, medium medium-low, maybe medium-high range because I think every snare drum once you crank it to a certain point the shell kind of becomes less important the heads become the primary factor in the sound so you really kind of hear the shell with like medium and lower tunings so anyway let's get into it let's start with with maple so this is where I thought the maple drum sounded best Um, but truth be told the maple drum could work in any situation literally you could take this drum on almost any gig and it'll work I mean of the six the most versatile definitely very versatile but here's my preferred sound on the maple drum Okay, next up is birch. I'm choosing birch next because it's probably the second most popular wood used. And it's also maybe um, relegated to being lesser than maple too often, probably because there's so many different types of birch and some of the like lower price drums over the years have often had birch shells. But this is primo birch. This is the best of the best. And to my ears, um, this drum just sounded perfect. There's something full and punchy but kind of like like not not, pre acute is a terrible way to describe something it just it just does what it needs to do and nothing more nothing less easy to tune you know snappy punchy dense responsive it can be big and full so here's the birch drum Next up is Walnut. Now, of all I posted, I think each one of these drums I posted on social media separately, to kind of feature, um, Walnut was the one that I got the most like, whoa, what is that drum? Like everyone was like, whoa, that Walnut drum. And I think that's generally the response with Walnut. It's like, wow, that's got something special. Now, I found in certain situations it's not the best choice. But if you're looking for a drum that just is full of vibe and inspiration walnut is is way way up there so here's my preferred tuning with the walnut drum on that day Next up, let's go to cherry. Cherry is the one that I was hoping would do exactly what it did, which was like kind of bright and lively and punchy, but also had some vibe to it. Kind of sitting in between, I think of what like maple and birch. Like maple can do everything, birch is, does something like really this more distinct about it. Cherry, I think, is sitting right in between them, and this is the one that I told Chris. I might have to buy this sucker. So this is the Cherry Prime Series snare. All right, now let's get into the two... Maybe lesser common, have the more open grain. Let's start with oak. Oak is the drum. I have an oak drum that I use on every gig. I've used it for the past six months on every, just about every gig. Every gig where I'm taking my own gear. Because in different rooms where the acoustics might not be great, oak just hits, gets out of the way. It sounds big and full and warm and you hit it and then it just dies down. So then you're just dealing with the drum head. Like how long do you want the drum head to ring on? Because the shell dies down quickly, and then you've got some drum head resonance to deal with. But this is a great workhorse drum for me, perfect for gigging. So, this is Oak. Lastly, here's the Ash drum. The Ash, to be similar to Oak, but maybe a little bit more kind of vibe, something a little bit different about it. Um, very, very cool. Also looks great. So this is the last of our Prime Series wood species drums. All these drums are five and a half by 14 8-ply shells, no rebrings. rings um, So this is Ash, and let's check it out. that concludes our wood species snare drum shootout not really a shootout just more like an informative look at six identical drums made from totally different species um, hope you learned something hope I didn't bore you too much with too you know too much of a deep dive on this stuff I've got some feedback from some people at PAIC that you really enjoyed this these kind of nerd fests um, it's only going to get nerdier from here uh, but anyway, that's that's it. Those are all thanks to Chris Carr for building out all these drums over Bucks County Drums. Um, let me know if you want one. We can hold it for you. Otherwise, they'll be on sale on Drum Factor Direct here in about a week. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee or call 615-383-8343 or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Okay, let's get over to our featured artist this week. I'm interviewing legendary jazz funk drummer Mike Clark. Mike Clark kind of rose to national or international recognition back in 1974 as a member of Herbie. I guess it might have been before that, but he appeared on Herbie Hancock's record "Thrust." Legendary band. He joined the Headhunters tour, so it must have been before that when the record with Harvey Bass and Mike joined for the tour. Um, and so he's. I mean, he's worked with he worked with Herbie for a number of years. Several records. Then the Headhunters branched off on their own thing, starting in '75. He's played, he's been on record with Eddie Henderson, Brand X. I'm just going through his credits now. It's it's pretty crazy. Um, his own bands. Um, gosh, where else do we go here? So many. Jeff Berlin, Charnette Moffat. Um, he has a, a project with Michael Wolf. And then this this year, the headhunter headhunters put their first record out in, I believe, about 10 years. So this is about their yeah, so this is their 50th year. Uh, the new record is called Speakers in the House. It's a really, really cool record. Um, it's got some you know classic Mike Clark kind of broken 16th note funk stuff. It's got a, a swing version of actual proof. There's some some African-influenced stuff, there's some New Orleans stuff in there and then there's some production kind of cool things where they're you know cutting and pasting and doing some you know some kind of more modern production techniques. Mike sounds great as always. He's always a fun hang, so let's get to it with Mike Clark. 50 years with the Headhunters, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I didn't realize the band had been around that long until I went back and looked at the date of the Herbie record. So, my first question is what this made you guys decide to keep going once the herbie band was over
0: um i think what happened was we were kind of all doing our own thing and uh you know i'm like a bebop guy so i went way into it which is what i was doing before herbie so i was kind of settled and happy and uh uh uh, bill summers and i somehow or another ended up talking just to say hello and then he said hey man uh, well, there was a lot of bad vibes and bad blood in the old band i won't go into all that because it seems silly now at this age mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, he was like you know we sort of all left on a weird note what if we did it one more once and see what happens and i'm like yeah i'm always cool to work and uh I love playing with Bill, and so uh, we did we he called uh, I went down to New Orleans to his house and uh, Donald Harrison came over who lived in the neighborhood to do something I forget what Donald was doing there obviously they were going to do some kind of project or a gig and uh well hell let's let's ask Donald man he's fantastic as you know and okay and um uh, so we called paul jackson and uh i had a manager already i was on the road with another thing called prescription renewal which is my own band with scary charlie hunter robert walter dj logic and a bunch of guys so i said well man maybe we can make something uh, happen here so the manager i had booked us some headhunters gigs bill reached out to a couple agents we went to europe we made a couple of records And then, you know, we ended up Donald would call and say, hey, you guys want to play Jazz Fest or do you want to do a spot on Tremé or do you want to do this or that and then more gigs. And then I would go down to New Orleans maybe to play a jazz gig at Snug Harbor and then I'd say, well, what the hell, let's just do a Headhunter's gig. And then one thing led to another. So on and on and on. And we just kept going you know and then we we've had some times where we were seriously busy with the headhunters and then somehow we'd all go back to our lives and nothing would happen for like 6 or 8 months and pretty soon hey some guy called from Europe wants us to blah 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 you want to do it yeah okay let's do it and uh We've had a million great guys come through the band, uh, not really permanent members, but we've had Fred Wesley play with us and we've had uh, uh, Scarrick play with us and uh, all kinds of guys. uh, uh, But this uh, Jerry Z, the great organ player, uh, has played with us and still some on and off does play with us. And uh, then. i guess about a year or so ago we we had played with kyle Roussel and uh and uh, and chris before and um uh we played with those guys and uh chris Severn and uh on base uh, and uh we said man this is pretty fat this really works because chris can play Totally, he's a jazz cat as well as a funk catier, and he can play all kinds of creative, crazy bass stuff like right on the spot, make it up right on the spot. He can turn on a dime. So, and uh, Donald is completely amazing artist. Uh, you know, there's, I mean, uh, his depth and his knowledge is it's intimidating. I mean, this guy can play bebop, post-bop, funk. He can sing African, Afro-Cuban. He's played with all the great Latin stars. He's played with Miles and Tony and Elvin and Art Blakey. And, you know, I mean, at length, he knows these cats really well. He didn't just stop by and play a few tunes, you know. And he writes. Once we were in uh, Russia together and he wrote a symphony with no keyboard, just he heard it in his head and wrote it down and had it performed several times, no keyboard. He just heard the notes and wrote, I was there. So, you know, so I love playing in this band. It just keeps getting deeper and weirder and more out and more strange and more funky and more soulful. And everybody, uh, finds a when finds a way to play together you know like in this situation cuz it's not a jazz gig but it's not exactly a funk gig either and it's certainly not a fusion type meaning you know all of those lines like Mahavishnu it's not that it's on the soul side so uh anyway we just kept going then we met uh, uh devil hill management we met those cats and uh they're like hey let's do something with the headhunters and see what's up and then we had this record am i rambling i have had a big cup of coffee right before keep going man <laughs> you know i can st- just stop me anytime i want to like some kind of stream of con- but anyway um uh We, while we were on the road some time ago, we ended up doing this gig in a ship that was docked. The nightclub was an old ship that no longer sailed. It was pretty amazing. And the club was down, you know, you walk down into the hole of the ship and there's a nightclub. And the guy said, I have a facility to record and kitchens and living space. It's beautiful. It's right on the dock. You, you guys can record there. We had Reggie Washington with us on base, the great Reggie Washington. So, uh, who had played in Branford's band and many bands. And uh, he'd been living in Europe for some time. And Reggie and I were roommates during the old Harlem days uptown in New York. And uh, so we knew each other and Reggie's is great. Uh, he fit perfectly. So we made this record. Then we sort of put it in the can. Then somehow everybody went back to their lives and I started doing my jazz thing and Bill was doing his uh, thing. He had Los Hombres Caliente and this Nat and Donald was doing everything. And um, sort of the record, we still did some touring, but the record was sort of on hold. And then we, uh, when we met... uh, Greg and Craig from Devil Hill, they said, well, what do you got in the can? And we said, well, this. So we needed to fix it up a little bit and kind of, uh, it wasn't completely finished, the record. So we, uh, Jerry, I went over to Jerry Z's house. He's got a studio in his house and we recorded a piece called Vast Puricon and, uh, and then we edited a few things and uh, we had uh, Donald put some horn parts here and there as he saw fit. Uh, we all wrote together the pieces uh, except for actual proof which Hancock wrote of course and um, but we played actual proof but uh, I said let's play it like with an elven style lope let's not play it like dun 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 and it, you know every time i hear a fusion band play actual proof they play it so fast that it, it's not funky. and of course everybody unloads everything they know how to play and i'm like let's not do that let's swang a lang baby and make it real groovy so i love this arrangement we had stephen gordon on piano at that time and uh, uh so uh, you know we uh did some pretty intense stuff. Congo square, which has some strange sounding African instruments. One African instrument I've never even heard of before. And, uh, Uh, I think it's a pretty um, I think there's something in there for everybody. I actually you know as an artist we barely you know you listen to a record a lot when you mix it and you never listen to it again pretty much unless somebody plays it or you hear it on the radio or every once in a while you dig it out but I've been kind of enjoying listening to this one like when I'm cleaning the house and doing stuff you know which I I don't normally do that so (laughs) somebody likes this record (laughs) That's a good sign.
1: How does the band you said you write together. What does that mean? Does it start as an impromptu groove? I mean, how does the yeah. process start?
0: Well, it, a couple of different... Uh, let's see, in this last... Uh version if you will of the band how it uh well sometimes somebody will sing a line or sing something or have an idea or say hey man uh, remember that uh, there's a blues lick that goes like this or donald will just come in with a with damn near a whole thing you know uh or bill and i will start with a rhythmic underlying and make suggestions and kyle uh, chris somebody will start putting a part on their part on there and then uh, somebody will either sing or play or make up a line but we're kind of all do this together very seldom does sometimes but very seldom does a guy walk in with a whole thing already done Mm -hmm. at least on this record Mm -hmm. you know and plus it was piecemeal the way we did it we're all in different towns and this that and the other so it wasn't exactly like we all were together on the road and we wrote and arranged and everything. This kind of went down all in the studio and it was all on the fly because we're all pretty bu- we're all pretty busy with our solo careers, like for real. Mm. Yeah.
1: Have you played much of this material on gigs and have they evolved?
0: Yeah. we, uh, we just played SF Jazz. And uh, uh, we played a place called Nectaris in Portland. I think it was either Seattle or Portland. Um, uh, I can't remember. It was only a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Seattle. Anyway, so um, I think. So... Uh, <laughs> We have played the material also at the Keystone in Baltimore, and a little bit in Europe. So we've dabbled and dabbled and we keep and tweaking. But on this last gig that we played, it seemed to have a jazz-like breakthrough. I, I mean, that word is weird to use. Jazz-like, splang, blang, lang. I don't mean that. It. I, what I'm trying to say is like there was a lot of interplay but it seemed to organize itself nobody was stepping on each other nobody was trying to play this way or that way it organically found uh, its way uh, uh, and uh, uh, turned into something that in my humble estimation was really interesting at least for me it was I was I was I found it really interesting and I'm the kind of drummer that unless it's really a conversational, uh, I'm, I, I, it's not that interesting. for. I don't mind playing straight pocket especially if I'm getting pl- paid or if there's somebody singing some real nasty funk. Mm-hmm. But just to play pocket with a bunch of jazz musicians improvising and I'm back there chopping with you, I gotta really get a good payday to do that at this age mm-hmm. and at this point. You know, I'd rather be like Elvin and Train or Tony and Miles and speak to each other and make a collage. Mm-hmm. I don't care what beat is, whether it's swing, funk, rock, whatever they want to do. You know, so if I'm in a play with some guys and it's not just going to be to make rent then i want to do something at this age that i find interesting for me i don't care what other drummers and everybody thinks you know i mean it's i'm way past all that now so it's a personal investment in whatever remaining time i have left on the dirt ball you know (laughs) right (laughs) you know (laughs) you know
1: Do you have to shift your mindset at all when you go from more of a straight-ahead setting to this band, or is it all... I mean, it sounds like the language is interwoven, but I'm just curious. Do you have to kind of dust off your funk chops at all?
0: No, I I, I mean, I definitely can't play swing stuff. I have to play some kind of funky, or whatever you want to call it, 8th note, or 16, or whatever the numbers are, beat. You know, so you can't play splang-a-lang. Sometimes we do. It can go there. But most of the music is not. So that's the only part. Now, see, I don't have fusion or uh, 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 the language I play is all bebop and post-bop, all from Max Roach, even from Gene Krupa until now, you know, Chick Webb, whatever you want to say, he's the guy. And we're all playing his stuff, no matter who you are, even if you don't know who the guy is. So anyway, like, but, yeah, none of my stuff is like, I don't do any of that. I'm not interested in that. I do like to hear other drummers do that. I think it's great. I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. listen to that. But me, all my language comes from the, if you, jazz, Duke Ellington, all of it, till now. Coltrane, Sonny Rollins. I've listened to his, you know, I'm 76 years old. And I've been playing since I'm five. My father was a jazz drummer, so I've been listening to Straight ahead acoustic, you know, forever. So that's my language. And I, I guess what made it unique for Hancock, possibly, is when I play funk, I use instead of playing quote unquote fills, I play that stuff. And people in, in the 70s hadn't really heard that before. I had mm-hmm. thought of that when I was, I don't know, 14. That wasn't new for really. I had, I, that was like my generation. It was like, hey, you know. Else, I mean, you know, we didn't play rock in high school when I was a kid or anything like that. We played some form of swing music or a big band or whatever. So I just put that stuff. And so for me, uh, I guess it's a long answer to that question is, uh, no, there's not a big, uh, the, the volume can make a difference. If the volume's too much for me, then the type of st- then I have to resort to some, and I find that shit boring, man. I'd rather mm. hear some other guy play drums like that. It's not <laughs> what I do. You know, I I did Billy Joe and Elvin and all that. Yeah, I mean, period.
1: <laughs> now back back when you were kind of developing this this vibe, was it was it a deliberate decision, let me throw this bebop stuff in funk? Or I mean, how did you get to that point? And then was there were there people that were like, What are you doing, man? Could you just play a beat? <laughs> you know?
0: yeah all of that yeah <laughs> uh, well if you're in the if if you have to deal with culturally beaver and wally they're going to be it's too much it's too loud <laughs> But, uh, you know, I mean, so yeah, I ran into that shit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but Herbie and those cats are like, I hear you, bro. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They heard it. You know, it wasn't all that deep anyway. I mean, God, it wasn't rocket science, you know, but, uh, but yeah, like, um, how did I develop it? I was on an organ gig for four years when I was young. And, uh, and then was farming out to a million jazz bands and people were starting to play Horace Silver type funk and Mercy Mercy Cannonball. So uh, I'd be on an organ gig where you primarily played mostly swing and shuffles and some boogaloo. Uh, so I we us younger guys got tired of boogaloo and tried and started jacking it and jacking it out and sci fiing it and trying to do stuff to it. So what I, my thing was when I played Mercy Mercy, I started adding all the ghost notes and then I thought, well, a double stroke roll, two on each, or single or paradiddles. I could do that on the hi hat and one on the snare and fill in with the bass drum, and then I took a lot of Philly Joe stuff and uh, a lot of elvin and tony stuff and just took bits and pieces of it and made beats out of it and uh um which is kind of what was uh was gonna go that way anyway uh and uh i remember the first time i heard garibaldi him and i were both shocked because we were both in a similar direction and um uh, uh so from those old organ gigs and playing the jazz gigs, I started doing that stuff and, and, it, and no actually nobody gave me a bunch of gas about it Everybody was like yeah What is that? That's really cool and of course then there was Paul Jackson and I and Paul was my very best friends We were criminals together and, and you know like we did all kinds of antics Girlfriends hanging out drinking what have you besides just playing and we had a million bands together and he played upright bass And We played with Woody Shaw and Bobby Hutchison and Joe Henderson and all these cats and Paul worked at Sherman and Clay Music Store He was a manager as well And he brought uh, to we had a music room in this place We rented and he brought an electric bass that sat in the corner for about two years of Fender Precision And one day he said play that weird funky stuff you do that upside down funk thing and I did and he put those bass lines to it right away he took the bass out of the case and played it and the first thing I said to him was man if you're going to play bass like that we need to hire a bass player because <laughs> he played every 16th note man you know and and I, I he, he told me two words and I think you know what they were <laughs> and then uh, and so we started hiring out We started our own little band based on that, we had so much fun doing it, and uh, it became real popular in the Bay Area, we started playing with everybody, and pretty soon I'm up there with an electric bass instead of the acoustic bass, now that was a big change for me and still can be weird for me because if you try to swing with electric bass it's real fat the notes are real thick and it's hard on the ride cymbal but for funk it's cool unless they turn it up too loud which to me always destroys the groove and then you can't play any ghost notes or any hip stuff with that going on you just have to slug out a two and four which i have students 13 that can do that really well (laughs) so uh that answer all that oh yeah the other thing is too much or too busy like i say uh, uh, in oakland you know it was like a soulful excursion going on there but every once in a while i'd end up on wally or beaver's gig and when i did they'd be like i think that's awful busy or it's loud or or it's too much where is one and i'd be like it's after two bro and (laughs) And you know, like it's before two and after four. <laughs> like it's really, I mean, God, please do some homework. But um, but not too much of that. Most of the guys I played with were extremely great. Mm-hmm. I was lucky. Most of them were jazz cats that decided to mm-hmm. play funk because it became popular, and we all needed to work. The work and rent is the two words. Right, right, I've right. Been still, just played bebop till the day I rolled over in the grave. You know? <laughs> it's pretty much what I'm doing now, except for the heads. I want to come back to
1: the the Oakland scene, but first, you just mentioned that about the bass sound. And before we got on, you were talking about that symbol behind you. So, choosing gear that fits the gig. You know, what is your philosophy? What's your concept for that?
0: Well, because we can't afford to fly our instruments anymore, or take our own instruments. My concept is I have to play whatever set that they have. Now, here in New York, when I on all in jazz clubs, all the stuff is geared for jazz. All 18 2 two-headed bass drums, small toms. You know, like I mean, an eight by twelve and a fourteen or whatever, or maybe two toms on the bass drum. You don't have a twenty-two inch bass drum with black dot or heads or whatever. You know, uh, pinstripes or bass drums with that rubber thing that won't let you won't you know so it's all the jazz stuff here so you don't have to sweat that you go out in the road and, man you, you might have a cardboard box for a bit you know you get all kinds of stuff like that. If I were to take my own drum for the headhunters, I play my jazz kit, which is an 18-inch DW, 8 by 12, 14-inch. It's more than enough with now that you got monitors and all this stuff. I do put a little something like moon gel on the back of the bass drum head and tune it down slightly, but it's still I use the jazz sound for everything. I do have a 22 that's been in storage for, I don't know, about, 14 years i just never take it out i do like a 20 inch bass drum for the headhunters you know and you can't always uh but if i use my uh drums it's fine
1: and so how do you decide because some of the tracks the snares a little bit dampened and some of the tracks it's wide open like what what determines that decision well
0: The ones that may be wide open were done here in New York and and, uh, what determines that is the drum set that they have in the studio and the stuff we did in Europe was a big bass drum and, and you have to uh, it, you know, there, I don't even know, it probably had a hole in the head in some, like a dead horse or cow inside of it to, you know, to get that, uh, you know, when I do that to a bass drum, it doesn't even sound like a drum, it sounds more like a signal, but you know, rather than argue with an engineer or producer that doesn't understand a jazz sound, I just play what's there and do the right thing, like if it's a 22, I'm not going to tune it up like an 18 inch bass drum, you know, mm-hmm. but I do like uh, uh, you know, I do like, you know how the bass drum sounded on those Motown records, man? The toms had two heads, they were tuned up, and the bass drum had that African sound to it. I love that, man. I mean, uh, they knew how to record that stuff and uh, and uh, and make it right, you know. Um, so, so, depending on the set, you know, I try to, I'm not going to, go against the grain at this age and this point. I'll do, I'll try to do the most sensible thing for the record.
1: Mm. What do you look for in a ride cymbal?
0: Uh dark uh, note and uh, as much stick as I can get without having it be too tight. Mm. You know, I don't like a lot of spread because if you're playing with trios um, you don't want it like to roar everybody out of the room. I like a symbol you can dig in. I'm from the old school, I like the ice cream scoop on a symbol. I like the dirty beat, dirty swing beat, like, you know, and. Uh, um you know, man, it's funny. I was in a car the other day driving, and Sugar came on the radio, and I was listening to that dude. I think his name is Billy Kay. I met him once. What a nasty ride beat that dude had on that record, man. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, yeah, bruh. You know? Uh, turning that stick. And so I like a symbol that's got that kind of back alley thing to it. I don't need all that high-pitched uh, polyester pingy stuff. hmm mm. In my brain, that's how I feel. I hear other guys do it, and they can it, they can make it work. I can't, you know. I'm not the kind of drummer that can play any drum set, any surface, any cymbal. No, I'm not that guy. You don't catch it like it's it's in this. The drummer, it's not the equipment. That's bullshit, man. If you get a symbol that just sounds awful, and it's like, ah, how are you gonna play it, man? Or how am I? I'm maybe some other guy. That's fine with me. Let the guy, Mister Know It All, play that cymbal. I'll play my stuff.
1: Uh, right you know, on. That,
0: that rap, I play any cymbal. Mm. I play any bass player. I don't care what you know. Yeah, I know, bro. John <laughs> Wayne. You know, I I know you bad, bro. You know, I, you know. I hear you. Believe me, I hear you. I know, right? All right. There's that. Anyway, what else you got for me? <laughs> Where are you anyway?
1: I'm in Pittsburgh. Oh, you are? Yeah. Not-
0: Crawford's Grill, huh?
1: Yeah, man. Well, that's yeah. not here anymore, unfortunately. But Roger Humphreys is still here playing his butt off.
0: Oh man, he's he's wonderful, man. Please tell him I said hi. I love oh, yeah. him. He, was, uh, he somebody interviewed him the other day. It might have been Jake Feinberg, and he was giving up some great stuff. Art Blakey and uh, all the stuff he used to go here at Crawford Grill.
1: Yeah, right. Well, let's You're let's give a, a little I, bit of um a little bit of advice for if you see someone playing the actual proof beat these days what what criticism do you usually have or what advice would you have for someone to get a, a little bit better
0: oh, you know like criticism is kind of opinion even though i was the guy on the original i mean it's like uh um so i don't think that uh uh when guys play it too fast i don't care for it personally that doesn't mean it's not really done well mm. it's just like, huh now, we were getting funky with that thing, man, and talking all in between the lines. We weren't trying to be like, you know, it wasn't like an RPM. See how many RPMs we could crank out. It was like some grease, man. So um, I know what I like, but that doesn't mean that I need to, at this age, for me to, uh, uh, I don't need to talk, you uh, about another guy, unless the guy is not very good and he needs to, or unless he needs to grow and maybe I can help him, and even then I don't offer up too much. I would say, um, play it how you feel it, man. You know, I've heard a lot of guys play it, and some I'm not going to mention names. Some guys I like the way they do it better than others, for sure. <laughs> Oh, you know who can play it to death is Tommy Campbell. He plays it better than I do. I love how Tommy Campbell. There's a a video of Tommy Campbell playing actual proof out of all the guys I've ever heard do it. Yeah, all he, right, all right take on it yet he kind of comes out of what we did paid for the hats some respect and then he goes on and does his own work. it was i was like who's that cat oh it's tom oh my god
1: <laughs> nice. he
0: understood it man he understood the funk in it
1: mm.
0: it wasn't about you know, you know it, 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 that's not it was that's not what we were thinking at all it was more like our version we were listening real close to each other that's what it was it was mm. like Tony used to talk to all of the guys in the early records, we weren't playing like those guys, but it was that role model, Elvin and Train, all those like real interactive bands where you just didn't play your stuff, you played it according to what everybody else, you're hearing the whole pie and with Hancock he can really track you he's listening to everything he's like a a computer man I mean he can hear your every breath and you're aware of that when you're playing and then you become comfortable with him like that and pretty soon you're doing it too and that's what I learned from him I always was in that direction anyway but doing it with a guy like that I honed it down a little bit (laughs) you know
1: so go back to the the Oakland thing um you mentioned Garibaldi and I don't think i I know the history on your relationship did you know each other or did you meet as adults like what is what's the connection and then how the heck did you both sort of end up doing the same First type of, all, of stuff yeah.
0: Well, I love David Garibaldi as a human being, and he's one of the greatest drummers ever. Well, here's what happened, the way I recall it. And you can ask him if this is correct, and his memory is probably better than mine. Um, just knowing David uh, <laughs> uh, and knowing me. Uh, okay, so uh, there was a club called the On Broadway, and uh, there was a band called the Reality Sandwich, and this tenor player named Vince Denham, which, Jazz musician called me and said, You want to play with this kind of rock, f- rock, funk band? Runk. <laughs> okay. And I, and I yeah, Runk, did I say that? <laughs> I just kind of knew. Yeah, we were playing rock, man. So I, I'm like, Yeah, hell yeah. You have 50 bucks a night in those days or 20, whatever. And I'm like, Yeah, sure, I'll play. And it was like a Monday night or something like that. So I went in and I played. And I played a few things and David Garibaldi, who I did not know from a can of paint, was sitting in the audience. And he came up to me and he said, Hi, I'm David Garibaldi. I play with these guys sometimes too. And I wasn't psychologically, he said this to me, I wasn't psychologically prepared for what you just played. Something I had played, not my entire scene, but I had done something. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So I didn't even quite get what he meant, but I, I i knew it was some complimentary. It was like, I took him by surprise on something, but I had no idea what he meant. So, but I liked him instinctively. I liked him, I like, well, this guy's a smart guy. I liked him, you know, just without hearing him play. So a few nights later, Paul Jackson and I went to the on Broadway and we were in Jack London Square, which is where it was. And we went to have a drink and there was a band in there playing and it was the Tower of Power and they were not famous, nobody knew them and there was only about six or seven people in the club. And I'm like, hey, that's that guy that I met the other night playing drums up there and they hadn't started yet, you know? And I was checking out his drum set, and I could see the way he, the drums that he had. He had a Slingerland set with two uh, tom-toms, a mounted tom and a floor tom. And he had a Chinese cymbal. And uh, just the way he was set up, I was like, this cat is going to play something, you know. But I had no idea what it was going to be. And, man, these cats took off, and it blew my mind. The whole band was rocking, man. And David was knocking out that stuff. <clears throat> and in one way we're completely different animals of course and in another way we were on a similar path so i think that's what he meant when he heard me because when i heard him first of all i was floored at how this man thought and played and where he was putting things and where he was not putting things was brilliant the beats were completely wonderful and and innovative and new and i could tell he'd been checking out clyde and purdy's and and uh And uh, Jabbo and who who, um, uh, Zig and uh, um, and I was like, man! And this cat obviously can play jazz too. So there's something going on here. This cat is sophisticated, and I really dug it. But I also felt the same way he did. Like, well, I thought I was kind of the only guy on this path. I'd never because I kind of got to it through a drummer named Ray Torres, a great, great drummer who passed away from Fort Worth, Texas. And this dude was busting up the 16th note in the triplet like Elvin style before anybody I ever heard in my life. I had, you know, so he was the guy that sort of triggered this thing up in my brain. Just, he did it way different and it wasn't a lot of ghosting like I do, but some more than I was used to hearing. And then I just sort of went mad with it because I already had this jazz background. I had chops so I could play all this stuff. And then when I heard uh, Garibaldi, I'm like, wow. And uh, so, you know, I told him, man, that was great. And we became friends. And then later we were linked in history together, which I'm honored because I think he's a brilliant uh, artist.
1: Did you ever get together and play drums together, or? Uh, no, we haven't.
0: Uh, no, but we've we've certainly discussed. We have a, a a group of really wonderful drummers called the Stick People. Hmm. And it's uh, Gregorico, Michael Shreve, the great Lenny White, Dave Garibaldi, and myself. And we interview Larry. We so far, the stick people, uh, you can find us on YouTube uh, or just stickpeople.com. We've interviewed Larry Graham. We've interviewed Stanley Clark. We've interviewed uh, Dennis Chambers. We've interviewed... so many guys I can't even think of it. The word is we're getting ready to interview Jack DeJeannette, I think I just heard, and we've uh, um, uh, uh, Steve Jordan, not just drummers, but all kinds of folks, people who were writers for the scene, you know, back in the day, uh, um, uh, wonderful in interviews that, that, and then we hang out with each other too this was during covid so we talked a lot of trash before these interviews so it's quite funny too all of the different personalities and these guys are all serious drummers and serious artists and people away from the drum set too mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> stick people.com you said stick people yeah yes must stick people I yeah stick people. Yeah, what, and interviews are. Well, go ahead.
1: I'll say I went to, to check them out. We'll we'll put a link in the show notes to that as well, so people can find it. Um, yeah, wonderful. What does a practice session for you look like these days?
0: Well, let's see. Um, if uh, I have to read a lot of music, and I'm like kind of a C level reader, and I've been a C level reader since third grade. And I play in big bands and I do tons of record dates and and it's like still if I have to sit down and read method books along another drummer I'm going to get my butt kicked. I studied with a great drummer here named uh, uh, Joe Bonadio who really can play and really can read And, uh, and then COVID came and threw a wrench in that and I've been lazy since then but I have all the books that he and so I when i find my reading starting to get below uh because i for i'm reading a lot my band reading is like pretty good and and uh and so i can take care of business if i have to and do but uh um my math was poor in school. I've always had trouble with it. And no matter how much I practiced the method books, you know, counting and all of that is, is difficult for me. I'm a natural drummer. I taught myself. I've never had a drum lesson in my life. I taught myself how to play as a child. I could just kind of play Gene Krupa stuff at four or five years old. And I just kept growing until now. But, uh, so I practiced, uh, out of the books, you know, and, uh, um, and then, uh, if there's some uh, jazz-type Latin rhythms that I'm weak in or that I've been BSing all these years, I try to tighten that up. If there's something I don't know how to play, then I teach myself to play it. If somebody, uh, I'm gonna make a record and somebody sends me an incredibly difficult piece of music, then I shed it here in the room, you know, by myself and and uh, figure it out. Um, I, I work out a little bit on my pad, probably every day just double singles and diddle, just to keep my hands up. I'm not, uh, now what I do is also I just play, but I play different time periods. Like I'll play bebop drums, like all day and nothing but that. Or I'll play post-bop drums all day or, or something, or my own take on all of it. Uh, f- phrases is what I'm trying to get at I'm always trying to add language you know the lexicon I'm, I'm always trying to add phrasing and language and dialects and different things and different ways of turning the, a phrase and stuff like that I find that more interesting than, uh, than practicing one hand to a metronome to make my left hand as fast as my right and all that I'm, I've been done with that kind of stuff for a, a long time I, I do not discourage others to do that it's just not where I well, at one point I remember I got all going on this and I had my single stroke roll up to 112 or something and it was fairly relaxed and I could find no place on the kind of jazz gigs I do to play like this or I developed the one hand thing like Buddy Rich and just by watching TV the finger uh, not the, you know, the push pull thing and I and, uh, I find nowhere to do this kind of playing because you just if you're playing jazz and you're really in the moment, you're, it's not going to be like oh yeah, hold on, you check this out. The, the, the tenor players is going to be like, what are you doing, man? You know, like like so. So as an adult, I uh, stopped doing a lot of those things. You know, yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean what it used to when I was. 21 and go into a drum store and some guys playing with one hand real for doing some red and i'd be like wow i got much learned that i don't know nah, not really <laughs> at one point the music took over and mm-hmm. it became, not the drums but it became the music and i realized god i could be playing another instrument it's about the music for me you know I love history. I'm always trying to watch documentaries. I'm getting ready to watch the Ron Carter documentary tonight. And I just watched a really good one on Louis Armstrong. I thought it was good on Apple TV. It's the latest one. And there's a lot of him telling the story in his own voice. So it's not some guy who didn't even know I'm telling this story. It's him, Mm. which I found that pretty cool.
1: I have to check that out. The Ron Carter one is amazing. I watched it last week.
0: Yeah, I heard it's fantastic. I can't wait. I know Lenny called me and was like, man, you got to watch you know, Lenny and I are, just for some trivia, we're movie friends. We have a Siskel and Ebert exactly. where we rate the movies. We go to the show together and have been doing this for many years.
1: <laughs> What's your favorite recent non-music movie?
0: Well... Uh, I, uh, uh, it's a series, not a movie. Um, since COVID, I, Lenny and I went to a movie recently. What did we see? I forget what we saw, but something just recently. I can't remember, so it must not have blown my mind that heavy. But uh, um, I've been watching something, a series called The Sinner. Mm. On. Netflix that I think is Bill Pullman smoking. I'm also watching Let the Right One In, a vampire movie, but it's not the coffin vampire of the old days. It's some high-tech stuff that I'm that I'm digging. And and I'm also watching Interview with the Vampire that I'm trying to figure out, do I really like this thing or not? But for some <laughs> reason, I'm still watching it. There is... I love to see New Orleans back in that time period and all of that. I have a connection with New Orleans. I don't feel like I play like those guys or or any musical thing like that. I did play a lot there as a child, but just the the the, the city, the culture, the food, the whole—you know. I, at least let's put it this way: I, I like it a lot. I'm not one of those guys that start talking all New Orleansy when I get there. You know. You ever notice you go on the road cast and they get to New Orleans? And say, hey, y'all, let's get us some of this here gumbo. I'm like, bro, you're from New Jersey. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> Go get a slice. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Give me that crap. Anyway, yeah. you know how that goes. All right. <laughs> All up?
1: right. So couple right. just a couple more questions here. I want to, you know, this is, this is always a hard one for people to answer, but if you had to pick your, like, Mount Rushmore of influences, who would they be in your top five?
0: Well, it's more than drumming, but I'll do drummers. Okay. Uh, well, god, okay, wait a minute. I won't do, I'll just do whatever. Okay, drummers, I'm gonna have to do this. And, and uh, first of all, it would be John Coltrane, Miles Davis, uh, Lee Morgan. Uh, um, um, what am I doing here? Uh, Clifford Brown, Max Roach. I might have gone over the numbers. Uh, um, and, uh, um, man, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, who, who's the guy from Newark that swings so hard that I love? and uh, Mobley? Uh, no Room for Squares.
1: Yeah, Hank Mobley?
0: Uh, Hank Mobley, thank you. Uh, those guys, that would do it, I think. You know, uh, is that right? Uh, so yeah. that would
1: mean all the drummers who played with them would have to be in your top list as well then, right? Or
0: Well, not necessarily. For drummers, it would have to be Art Blakey uh roy haynes tony williams elvin jones max roach um art blakey tony williams elvin jones roy haynes art blakey tony williams elvin jones max roach roy haynes uh um i dig Cluke a lot mm. um did i leave anybody out of that thing there uh art blakey
1: philly joe you'd mentioned oh jones
0: times. oh my god and philly joe sorry bro <laughs> uh god he's actually the one you know? <laughs> like so even though i don't play like him he's the cat i find i love jimmy cobb as well you know if i start doing drummers i'm gonna have to name about 70.
1: yeah i know that's how it goes right
0: those guys right there are are the main deal for me i would say you know uh um um
1: yeah i do now if you're going to go to your record collection and pick a record right now what would you throw on
0: um uh there's one out there by sonny stitt that i don't know the name of that i just found that i had the other day and it swings that uh um, it swings so hard, it's unbelievable. I'm going to have to text you and tell you. <laughs> okay. You need to hear this, too. And that you probably already have. But this is, uh, you know, I it was in my wife's uh, record side of her collection. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I put it on, and I was, like, floored. I actually played three nights with Sonny Stitt, but this, like, uh, is pretty deep, you know? And, uh, <laughs> Do you know who's on it? Uh, no, no, I just found it the other day and put it on. It's sitting, uh, uh, well, I think she might have put it back. She's a stickler for putting it back in the, you know, because it's, it's vinyl and, uh, um, she doesn't want the cats to scratch it. But, uh, um, I will find out and let you know. But it's a killer, man. You know, it's nice. just, oh my God, like the pocket is fierce and the whole thing. Uh, uh, I love Lou Donaldson. I mean, God, you know, it's, uh, you know, I love probably all the same guys you do, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, shoot, you know?
1: Well, last question is if you remember, what was your first snare drum?
0: Gretsch, uh, broadcaster. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had the when they didn't even call them round badges in those days, but I had the whole deal that everybody's willing to you know give their firstborn for. Now I had it. I had a bunch of those. As a matter of fact. I kept buying Gretch. And I didn't even know why. I just liked him. But I didn't. it wasn't the hip thing to do yet when I had him. I just, you know. And then, uh, of course, in the late 60s with Tony and everybody and Art Blakey and all that, there was no other drum set for me to have. I did have uh, a Ludwig drum set that I used on a funk organ gig for a while because my Gretz set was sounding too... Gretchy, and so uh, I didn't want to tune them down into the funk department, and this organ player kind of wanted a more of a funky thing, so some guy sold me a a Ludwig set, and man, that Ludwig snare was barking, Jack, and it's the one I used on Thrust.
1: Mm, No kidding.
0: In fact, this is it. I don't use it on gigs anymore, but it's in the practice room.
1: Oh, shoot. What do you got? Hiding behind the chair. <laughs> oh shoot.
0: Yeah, that's it. It's the old uh you know, it was a super sensitive that some guy before he gave it to me took all stripped it down and made just a regular old snare out of it, you
1: know? No kidding. Do you know if that's a brass or an aluminum show? Brass. Aha. Uh-huh. That's the sound, everyone. The thrust sound. Chrome over brass. Get it. <laughs>
0: so uh and now i'm a dw guy and with the advantage for me to that is the dw drums make me play jazz uh, they make me play everything like me if i play my i have a old Gretsch set and if i break those out i start trying to play like joe chambers or you know i start reliving my blue note collection instead of playing me uh-huh. so, yeah, yeah, for for sure. <laughs> Even at this stage, that sounds silly, but you know, you hear it and you start playing it. You know, so uh, so I use I don't use the old Gretchen, and, and uh, I mean this doesn't work. This is me. I'm just talking about me. So I know like a lot of guys that do, and they don't have that problem. <laughs> they play fantastic as a matter of fact. But really, the point of this interview. Is this bad boy right here? Speakers in the house.
1: That's it. That's it. Make sure you go check out that new Headhunters record, Speakers in the House. Now it's time for a lesson. This week, let's talk about everybody's favorite rudiment, the (laughs) paradiddle-diddle. The paradiddle-diddle is just like it sounds. It's two singles, right, left, and then diddle-diddle, right, right, left. Para diddle diddle, para diddle, diddle Starting with the right. Or the left. left, right, left, left right, right, left, right, 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 left, Right. Now here's here's a way to work on this to get it into a phrase that makes sense in four four. Because it's a six-note pattern. You could play triplets. One, two, three, four and that's cool. But again, I like to put these odd groupings into sixteenth notes to see how they cross over the quarter note and possibly over the bar line. So if you do this as sixteenth notes, one E and a, two E, three E and uh, And when you get to beat four, play sextuplet. One E and a, two E and, a, e and a So that's two as sixteenth notes and one as triplets. two ways we're going to we're going to mess with this a bit let's talk about the accents so in that case i was playing an accent on the first note one and two three and one and one, and two and three and four. one two and have you ever tried playing a paradiddle diddle accenting the second note one and two Diddle That's a pretty wicked variation. And then, so now you can combine the two and accent both of those singles. So that's three versions of one exercise, accent the first note, second note, and then the first two. Let's try it with the metronome. This is at 120. First note. Let's try that second note. Now the first two. Pretty cool. Now, like we did in the last lesson, we can move that triplet around. So let's start with the sextuplet. you do one 16th note version, put the sextuplet in the middle and then another 16th note version. So that would be <laughs> That one's pretty weird. That's a little bit like you're ice skating, but there's a lot of a lot of interesting phrases there when you just I mean really just focusing on accenting that second note of the paradiddle diddle diddle just makes the whole thing feel like a whole new universe. Especially in that triplet. Because you end up accenting the middle partial of a 16th note triplet, which is just so rarely utilized. Three, four, one, two, three, four. It's pretty cool. So I kind of rushed through this one, so again, let's take it slowly. You can do two paradiddle diddles as 16th notes, followed by a sextuplet, accent the first note, accent the second note, accent both. That's your three versions of that. Now you start moving that triplet around. Let's start with the triplet. Accent on the first note. Accent the second note. Accent on both. And now put that sextuplet in between the two sixteenth note versions. Accent the first note. Second note. Both. And there you have it. Again, you can just improvise with these ideas. And there's there's a universe of options. So just again, take it slowly, like I say every time. Work out each one of these variations with a metronome. Again, internalize the shift between 16th notes and the sextuplets, that's super important. You don't wanna blur. If you're playing 16th notes, it has to be accurate 16ths. If you're playing sextuplets, it has to be accurate sextuplets. Also, make sure your accents to taps, big accents, low taps. Super important for clarity and precision. All right, that's it for this week. See you next time. Okay, we just have one listener question this week. If you have any questions you would like me to answer on the show or maybe send out to someone to answer for you, shoot them to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. This week's question is from Blake Murray. Quick question for Drum Candy. What is your recommendation for lightweight hardware that has the quick change features like quick release washer? How about a lightweight snare stand with a completely adjustable tilter? i don't i don't know of anything that fits all those criteria but here's some suggestions lightweight hardware i'm using the tama classic series stuff so cymbal stand hi-hat stand bass drum pedal snare drum stand also a rack tom stand which is a like a snare basket with a slightly different design that stuff is super super lightweight it's kind of vintage style, but it, it can it can withstand some modern use. Uh, I wouldn't use it on like stages that maybe wobble a bunch or if you're outside in a bunch of wind. But for everyday gigging, the Tama Classic hardware is amazing. It um, doesn't have a quick change washer. But what I did, um, there's a company called Pinch Clip that I don't know if they're still around, but it's these metal washers that you literally it looks like a almost like a stapler or a staple remover to pinch it. And it just comes off in in half a second um i know tama also has quick release things where you just squeeze them and it can pop off so if you get the classic stands maybe get some of the tama quick release washers and there you go as far as the hi-hat um i don't know if tama has one remo has a quick release that's great gibraltar has one um lightweight snare stand yeah again tama classic stand that's the way to go um I haven't checked out. I mean, everyone around here is using the Yamaha Crosstown hardware. Super lightweight. I haven't put my hands on it, so I can't really confirm, you know, if it's better than Tama stuff. But that's what I'm using, Tama Classic stand. Okay, we're almost at the end of the show, which means it's time for the warehouse pick of the week. I've been informed that there is a ton of Zildjian merch on drumfactordirect.com. So if you're looking, again, for gift ideas, there's, I'm looking at now we have a... A Vic Firth backpack, there's baseball hats, there's t shirts, there's a Zildjian symbol keychain, mouse pad, the wall clock, we've got jumper's towels, there's a Zildjian backpack, there's a canteen, there's a water bottle, growler, wristband, sticker sheets, um, you know, all kinds of snapback hats. So if you're looking for some gift ideas, go check out the Zildjian merch over at drumfactorydirect.com. And that is it for this week's episode. Thank you again for listening. Thanks for your patience with the week off. We might be going every other week for the show for a little bit because we're really trying to put our efforts into launching the new Drum Factor Direct website. But I'm going to do my best to keep it weekly. Um, next week, I'm going to go, we're going to do the 10 Reasons to Love. Back to that special episode with uh, my buddies Tom and Dave here in the studio. But for now, I'm going to let Roger Lewis take over and send us off with his cool beat. And we'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,